0: We're going to continue working through this most famous sermon of Jesus today, often called the Sermon on the Mount. We're probably about 80% of the way through at the point, at this point. I can't take time to review today, so picking it right up where we left off, I'm going to start with a simple question derived from today's text, and here it is. I want you to think about this, and that is, what do you think about what do you think about what is it that dominates your thoughts what consumes your mind is it everyday life stuff or is it deeper stuff is it temporary stuff or is it eternal stuff is it worldly stuff or is it god stuff do you worry a lot do you think about bad things that may or may not happen You spend a lot of time wishing one thing or another would happen. What do you think about? Jesus will tell you today that what you think about makes a big difference in how you live your life, your emotions, your demeanor, even when you actually wind up doing what you wind up doing with your time, what you do day in and day out, strongly driven by our thinking. In a very real way, what you think about becomes who you are. And if you can believe it, in some way, how you think, get this, how you think affects what you receive or do not receive from God. You're going to find that in what Jesus has to say today. And since the Bible is very clear that God has given us the spiritual power to control the focus of our minds, the question becomes one of obedience. What do you think about it? Jesus continues his sermon, and we've arrived at verse 25 of chapter 6, where Jesus says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life, as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Take note that Jesus had moved into a different kind of posture at this point in his sermon. And his tone has become less harsh. Remember that much of his message is designed to show us how far we fall short of God's law. In order that we might understand just how desperate we are for saving, saving grace. But here Jesus is pleading with us as a parent would plead with a child. And he's not being theological but practical. The caring heart of Jesus really starts to come through at this point in the sermon. He begins to show that he he even cares about how we feel on the inside. Jesus cares about our concerns. And he cares that we're so very concerned. He wants to help us be less concerned about lesser concerns for our own sake because he is concerned for us. Another time Jesus said he came to give us a more abundant life, John 10.10. As most of you know by now, I'm far from a health and wealth type preacher. However, I do believe Jesus wants us to be happy. He may not want us to have more stuff or more success or the things we often think will make us happier, but Jesus wants us to experience the kingdom of God in our hearts. Yes, even to experience a certain kind of heaven on earth, the kind that changes how we think and gives us real and lasting peace of mind. To be clear, Jesus cares about your mental health, your emotional health, and that is exactly what this section of his sermon is about. I see here at least three applications, each of which involves getting control of our minds. So here we go. To get control of your mind, first of all, shift perspective. This comes from verses 25 through 29. Jesus says it this way again, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. Jesus tells us to shift our perspective away from concerns like clothes and food. But clearly these are only representative While food and clothing just about covered the stuff of everyday life in the first century, in our time, Jesus might have mentioned a few other things to get his point across. Life wasn't so complicated back then, and worldly concerns could be summed up with these examples, but we might ask what other worldly concerns fit under the same point. One other area on the Lord's mind, I think even that day, might have been politics. Remember, we talked about how the different political parties were there in the crowd, such as the zealots, ready to go to war. And see, the people listening on the mountainside that they were absolutely being taxed into poverty by the Roman government. They likely had family and friends who were in debtor's prison because they could not afford the policies of Rome. But they were poor because of Rome. Suffering because of Rome, the political power, their government. They hated Rome. <laughs> and so by inference, Jesus would have meant to say, don't be so worried about government and politics, which are completely out of your control. that regardless of what all Jesus may have had in mind, the idea was and is that temporal things are not nearly as important As we think. We can sub in COVID concerns quite easily as well. For them it was leprosy or similar diseases. No less terrible, no less deadly. Who takes care of us? Who numbers our days? How much does worry help? none and who among us does not have stories of the providence of God how many times must God take care of things for us to spend less time in unhealthy debilitating joy stealing knots of worry and anxiety Jesus is saying, don't worry or fret or be anxious about the stuff of everyday life. Don't worry about having what you need or what you think you need or what you would like to have. Stop spending so much time focused on the way you would like things to turn out. Jesus says, if those thoughts are the default mode of your brain, you're no different than the rest of the world. The Gentiles, as he calls them, and make no mistake, followers of Jesus are called to think differently than the rest of the world. Let's take a time out before we go on. I want to double down on the fact that you can control your mind. You can. Maybe someone's a little bothered by this idea. Like if you're, if you're new and you don't know me, and, and maybe you're wondering, is this some kind of Eastern mysticism kind of, you know, thing? No. I'm here to tell you the Bible is clear that it is your responsibility as a spirit-filled believer to control your thought life. You do not need to be a victim of your own mind. Jesus made it clear that we have a choice when it comes to what we think about. And if you're waiting for your mind to change on its own, you need to stop waiting and take action. You need to willfully shift your perspective from worldly concerns to the faithfulness of God, your heavenly Father. You need to get your head up, friends. You need to get your head up and you need to see God at work. The apostle Paul writes, "Therefore if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God." Set your mind on the things above not on things that are on earth for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God how's your mind set these days do you spend your time worrying about paying the bills does it help I didn't think so get your head up and see God Do you think constantly about politics or how bad one president is or another? Does it help? I didn't think so. Get your head up and see God. Or maybe you've turned to mind-numbing activities instead. Maybe that's how you cope. There's a time for recreation, and that's healthy, but do you spend all your time thinking about how to get to the next level in whatever video game you're playing right now? Have you binge-watched until you constantly think about your shows? Maybe you're wrapped up in economics. Do you fret about gas prices or the stock market? Do you think constantly about being ready for the next recession or how to endure the coming inflation? Or are you praying for revival? See, folks, followers of Jesus are called to set our minds on the heavenly kingdom instead of the earthly kingdom, on things of the spirit where there is life instead of things of the flesh where there is only death, Romans 8, 6. You need to shift your perspective. Do you constantly think about how your kids are messing up? Do you think about how you need to get the yard mowed? Do you dwell on on the tasks you need to get done? Do you think constantly about your debt? Do you try to figure a way out of the things you don't like about your life? Maybe if I go here, maybe if I change jobs, maybe if I... Do you spend a lot of time wishing your body looked different than it does or that you had different talents? Do you find yourself mulling over all of the horrible things that are going on in the world right now that you can't do anything about? Do you watch the news every night? Do you dwell on the pain of this world? Do you listen to lies and conspiracy theories and fill your head with doubt until all you can think about is what you don't know and how you don't know what to believe? Anymore. Get your head up from this world. And see God. Let me tell you something right now. And you can take this one home with you. Please hear me. And this one goes out to the typical. Go church member. This is for you. Here it is. You can be right. And still be worldly. That statement has multiple meanings. You can be right and still be worldly. Paul says, set your mind on things above. Jesus says, stop worrying about all the junk and trust your heavenly Father instead. Again, Paul says, we are destroying speculations. Well, that sounds good. Destroying speculations and every lofty thing competing with, raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Take captive every thought. That's mind control, folks. And do you hear the discipline in those words? Every single thought, this isn't going to be easy, is it? This doesn't sound very automatic, does it? No, controlling our minds is a very difficult thing to do, but we are called to do just that. There are so many verses that essentially tell us to control our minds. And understand that most of those verses... Tell us to do it by shifting our perspective from worldly things to the things of God. Exactly what Jesus tells us to do in our text today. We're not told to just stop thinking completely or or stop thinking about negative things or um, to numb ourselves, but rather to shift our perspective to the things of God. We need to make a choice to shift our perspective. Another verse says, Finally, brethren, whatever's true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. If there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. It's like mentally live on these things. Have you ever actually tried to apply verses like that? Or do you just skim over them and go back to reading the news? Or listening to political commentary on the news? You know what? I think we're actually supposed to make an effort at this. Jesus essentially said, turn your eyes from worldly concerns and train them to look up to the Father's love and provision instead. Which ultimately means we turn from something broken and negative to something perfect and positive. Sound good? Wait, is this about positive thinking? Well, to some degree, yes. And wouldn't that be a novel idea in these times for Christians particularly? Let me pause and give you an illustration about someone shifting their perspective. Just picture me as a little boy. Not that hard, I know. (laughs) I'm out at the baseball field. Not nervous, are you? I'm the greatest hitter in the world. I'm the greatest hitter in the world. Strike two. I'm the greatest hitter in the world. I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. Shifting your perspective. And that's a cute illustration. But I want to also point out that in calling us to shift our perspective, Jesus is calling for more than ordinary positive thinking. And Jesus is telling us how to do this with integrity. With integrity. How can we shift our perspective to something positive in the middle of a world on fire? Jesus shows us the only way. He says, you have to look to God And remember that he is bigger. The reason we can shift our perspective even now is that we can trust in the God of heaven no matter what is happening on this earth. Never before in my life have I needed to do this more than over the last year and a half. It's good to know that I'm not alone. Amen? Amen? Second, in order to control our minds, Jesus encourages us to believe God's promises. Shift our perspective and believe God's promises from verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Jesus makes a huge promise here. Do you see that? Even if we did not have the former promises of God, this promise of Jesus, who himself was God in the flesh, would be enough. Jesus promises, essentially, that God will take care of us. And notice in this part of the text that we learn the real problem behind worry and anxiety. The real problem is lack of faith. I still hear the old King James Version in my mind sometimes as if God were saying it to me directly. "O ye of little faith. And someone said, worry and faith cannot live in the same heart. So true. The solution to anxious thoughts is to choose believing over worrying. That may not be what your psychiatrist tells you, but that is what Jesus is telling us right here. We need to get control of our minds by believing God's promises. Now, we also need to understand who Jesus is talking to here, and we need to understand who he's not talking to. We know that his disciples were the ones who drew near to learn from his teachings, his followers, But Jesus also identifies his audience in verse 32 by contrasting the belief he's calling for against the default mode of unbelievers. Jesus says unbelievers, aka Gentiles, worry about all these things, while believers, that is his disciples, should not. In other words, believers should believe, which of course makes sense. But what exactly should believers believe? Jesus says that we should believe in the promises of God, thereby not allowing a negative, anxious thought life to take control. Remember, the whole context of this sermon from Jesus is how to be his disciple. This is about how to be a follower of Jesus rather than a non follower of Jesus. There's a difference. The question is are you following Jesus in not worrying? By believing instead. Believing what? That God is your Father and He'll take care of you. Do you stand on the promises of God or do you worry and fret like an unbeliever who does not have those promises? Do you worry about the same things as those who do not have Jesus as Savior and God as Father? Are your thoughts dominated by the same fears as those who do not know Him? Do you even understand that as a person who's trusted in Christ, you're indeed an heir to the promises of God? What promises? Well, generally that God will take care of you until your time here is done and that then he will also take care of you for eternity in a heavenly home. As you know, we lost a dear member this last week. We lost our sweet, joy. we lost joyful Nancy. To COVID, and it's very sad. It's very emotional on this end because we lost her. We lost her. We did. But God did not lose her, my friends. And that is the point. God did not lose Nancy, He took her even more completely into His arms. He kept His promise to her. Let me be clear that God has not promised that you and I won't die. He has promised that we will live again, but not that we won't die. Our soul goes to be with him until later our bodies will be resurrected at his return. God takes care of us even in death, but many people want to be able to think the promise of God is that he won't let us die. From COVID or from something else. But of course that is not his promise. The promise of God for the believer is that he will take care of you, even in death. This is why there's nothing to fear. If even death has lost its sting, there is nothing worth worrying about. God's promise is life after death. And his presence never leaves us from the moment we put our trust in Jesus. He's there. The Bible is filled with this promise, and this is exactly the promise we must trust in. Always. The church of these last days has failed to show an unbelieving world that they have anything to gain in coming to Christ. We have failed to point out that membership in the family of God has its privileges. Listen, becoming one of God's children by grace through faith in Jesus comes with great benefits even in the here and now, but especially in the hereafter. And we've let the world make us feel like the hereafter is not a good enough promise to make which of course is utterly nonsense. What could be a better promise than one that can't be diminished by the troubles of this life? You know, what are Christians in Afghanistan to believe right now? They are to believe that God is with them, like a father, and that he will sustain them and take care of them for as long as they live on this earth. But even better, that he will be with them for eternity in a place that is free from evil and death and suffering and pain. To the degree that they believe this, they have nothing to fear. To the degree that they can believe this, they have a kind of peace, a kind of mental control, that the kind that bears powerful witness to the reality of the person in whom we trust. But let me circle back for a moment to what we can believe for this life as well. And again, we're talking about what believers can believe in. We're talking about what God has promised, and we're talking about who has these promises, the disciples of Jesus, not the Gentiles, non-believers, who are actually quite right to be anxious and worried. Hang with me for a minute and think about this. In one sense, God does take care of the whole world. Just like the lilies of the field or the birds of the air, God sustains the whole world. Everyone wants to focus on the exceptions. And we've talked about before about the reasons for pain and suffering in this world and all of that. But do you realize how many things God is holding together right now just to keep this earth from becoming a lifeless rock? It's unbelievable how many things need to be just right for life to continue to exist on this planet. We have an extremely fragile little ecosystem here. And by God's design and His active hand of sustenance, we endure. So in that sense, God takes care of everyone. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust, as the Bible says. And we know His heart is good. And He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance, even though He also knows many will not. But here's my real point. There's another level to the care. And the concern of God when it comes to his children. And once more, who are his children? The Bible says those who have accepted God's gift of grace by faith in Christ have been adopted as his children. Jesus is clearly saying that becoming his disciple, God's child, comes with perks. Being a child of God comes with more than fringe benefits. Sorry to burst the postmodern, everyone is the same bubble. But the Bible is very clear that everyone does not receive the same treatment from God. Oh, really? Yes, really. Now, I do believe God loves everyone. And He wants everyone to come to Him and receive His free gift of salvation. But when people don't receive it, they don't get the benefits of it either. That's precisely how it works with gifts. You have to receive them to have them. We're not to be arrogant about this, nor should we promise a bed of roses to those who decide to follow Jesus because often there's persecution and difficulty, trials, as Jesus said there would be. But look, God is my Father. Christ is my Savior. The Holy Spirit is is my helper and the bible is full of promises that are made only to those who like me have put their trust in god's anointed messiah jesus christ the bible says those who come to god through christ are the apple of his eye that yahweh god rejoices over us with singing and dancing that we are now called his dear children when before we were actually enemies The Bible says we now may boldly approach God's throne in prayer, that he has good gifts to give us, that he has good plans and purposes just for us. And these are merely a few of the promises God has made to his children. By the way, the Old Testament promises are ours as well. We are grafted into the vine, the true children of Abraham. Fellow believers, all of the promises of God are ours in Christ. Let me close out this point by reading one of the great passages about the promises of God, which are ultimately true for those who believe. From Romans 8, starting in verse 26, the Spirit pleads for us believers, not just for everybody, for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of who? Those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. For God knew His people in advance. And he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. Ever notice that? He gave them his glory. That may be the most amazing gift And promise that we have. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who could ever be against us? Friends, those who believe receive God's promises. We could go on and on with the promises of God, but the real key to getting control of your mind is that you need to believe God's promises are for you. Personally. If you really believe God's promises are for you, that will change the way you look at life. Jesus says, this is how you kick out the anxiety and the worry, and this is how you move forward. Believe the promises of God. Final point. To get control of your mind, Jesus says, make God the first priority. Make God the first priority. I can just imagine Jesus dramatically raising his voice a little bit at this point, get ready for the big moment, sort of the concluding sentence for this important section of his sermon. The thesis and the summary, really, of what we've covered over the last several weeks. And here it is. Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's the whole thing in a nutshell. Weeks of sermons. (laughs) And then, just to remind him once more of the context, he says So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. How many times will you and I need to be reminded to prioritize God and the things of God? above the things of this earth. I suppose we might need this reminder over and over again, do you think? And this might be a reason to keep coming back to church. Like about once per week sounds about right. But what self-respecting Christian man or woman wouldn't say that God is at the top of the priority list? What Christian isn't going to say that, right? Sure, we, we, we would all say God is first maybe then family, whatever. But God, God, God is first. And most of us would be lying. We say this because we know it's the right thing to say and maybe we would even like for it to be true, but does saying God is first mean that he really is? Not really. So what is this notion of putting God and the kingdom of God, um, his righteousness first? First. Is there anything real to this, or do we get credit for just knowing the right thing to say? How can I know if God is first? Well, to answer that question, I'd have to get into specifics, wouldn't I? And specifics hurt. Oh, specifics, that's where I become unpopular quickly. And yet, of course, I will get specific anyway in order to make sure everyone realizes that putting God first is more than just an empty notion. What we need here is an example, something that is relevant, something that many of us need to think about. And so, here is my specific question today in terms of prioritizing God Can a person who regularly chooses to do something other than attending church on the Lord's day say that God is first? It's only a question. And maybe someone says, church as we do it today is a man-made idea. God and organized religion are two completely separate things. I can worship and serve God without any particular church. Yes, I've I've heard it all. I have the same response to each of those bold proclamations. Do you have scripture to support that viewpoint, or did you just kind of come up with that on your own? Because my Bible doesn't read like that at all. In fact, everything we read in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, tells us there's no such thing as unorganized, individualized religion where there's no regular, regular assembly of God's people, and more than just assembly, where there's no common mission, no common ministry, no togetherness. Churchless Christianity is simply not in the Bible. Everywhere disciples were made, local churches formed. They came together, they worked together, they grew together. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity in the Bible. The worship of God has always been a community endeavor. Just take in the New Testament, everything took place in the fellowship of believers called the church. ecclesia, which literally means assembly. Every command, every admonition, every teaching is to be acted out in the context of a local church body. For heaven's sake, almost the entire New Testament is written to individual specific churches. Apparently, at some point, the early church gathered every day. They, sh- they need to learn from us, you think? They gathered every day. So is it keeping God first to skip church on the one day of the week that we've set aside to come together, the day we remember the resurrection, which happened on a Sunday morning? I'm just trying to give an example of one way we might actually prioritize God in our lives. That's all. Now, if you think I have an ulterior motive and you think you can keep God first while skipping out on church, that's up to you. But if church doesn't have anything to do with keeping God first, what does? Isn't it possible, at least, that God might take it personally if you choose something else over gathering with believers on Sundays? couldn't that possibly be part of demoting God to somewhere lower on the list in your life? Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Pray about it. One thing I do know is that it doesn't mean a thing to say God is first unless there are real, tangible ways that we're living that out. How do I know if God is first? What does it even mean to put God first? Well, it's about choices, right? How about finances? How about obedience? How about reading your Bible? How about prioritizing prayer in the first part of your day? How about serving in the church and outside the church? How about the great commission that Jesus left us to to help others become disciples of Jesus? How about what you listen to, what you watch, what you say, what consumes your mind? Is God first in there? Is God first in your mind? What do you think about? And what if God isn't first in your mind or in your life? What does that cost you, according to Jesus? Oh, just everything. Look back at our text. The cost of not seeking Him first is quite simply all these things. All what things? All the things that you're worried about that won't be added to you if you do not seek him first. What does that mean? I don't know, but it definitely means something. If we're to gain all these things, as he says, by seeking him first, what do we lose when we do not seek him first? We lose whatever all these things means. (laughs) At the very least, I would say that you'll miss out on the peace of mind. You know, just contentment is all. You'll just be all riddled with worry and fear and anxiety and unhappiness. That much is clear in the context of what Jesus says and also whatever else he means by all these things. You do know that life is better when God is first, right? Gentiles don't know this. But believers should know. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, his plan, his will, and all these other things will be added. So what does it really mean to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? I'm not going to delve deep into detail here at the end. But based on the context, I do believe Jesus is still talking about issues that start in the mind. Remember, right after this statement about seeking God first, Jesus goes right back to telling them not to worry. That helps us see that seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness begins in the mind where worry also resides. What is first in your mind? If you're worrying and fretting, then God's kingdom and his righteousness are not what you're seeking first, says Jesus. But what this really means takes us back to the theme of the entire Sermon on the Mount in our series, How to Have Heaven on Earth. Jesus is telling them to prioritize the will of God on earth and to live out the righteousness of God in such a way as to advance or grow the kingdom of God, which we could say is to bring heaven down to earth. Our mission up until the end when he will create a new heaven and earth, finishing what he started through us. Disciples of Jesus are to seek God and his plan first right up until that plan comes to fruition at the end. And the contextual application is that in seeking God's plan first, our own very real concerns will give way to faith and hope and peace of mind. Because we will begin to see that God's plan is happening all around us and through us and in us. And it will happen. His plan will happen regardless of our worry and our concerns and our fretting and our stress and our anxiety. We get control of our minds when we remember who is in control of it all. We can get a grip when we remember who has us in his grip. Jesus is basically talking about an alternative to worry here in this passage. He basically says, seeking God first is the antidote. Why? Why is it the antidote? Because when you seek God and His kingdom first, everything else falls into line. When God becomes first in your life, everything else falls into line. Everything you really need is going to be added to you. And that's when you realize that God has your today and your tomorrow all figured out. You see, as followers of Christ, God's kingdom includes your care. Because you are a part of His kingdom. And he cares for you. And I'm reminded of something else Jesus said that he who loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he will take care of the rest. That's essentially what Jesus said. I wonder what would happen if millions of Christians took these words seriously. I wonder what would happen. If even a few Christians really, really sought God's kingdom first and trusted him with all these things, what would happen if we did that? Is that what the world's seeing in Christianity today? People who are trusting God with all these things? I don't think so. Do you need to shift your perspective from worldly worries to a firmer trust in God? Do you need to remember and believe his promises? Are you really seeking God's kingdom first? I mean, is what God wants to do in and through your life the most important thing? Well, folks, I want you to hear me say that it really does all start right up here. In your mind, you can actually do this. But it will require real mental effort. Maybe that doesn't sound spiritual enough. But I'm telling you that moving from worry and anxiety and fear to peace and contentment and faith starts with your mind. As one who has the spirit of God within, do not underestimate your ability to control your mind. That's no one else's job. And see... Your mind is where worry lives. Jesus says, get control of your mind by shifting perspective, believing God's promises, and seeking Him first. For the last year and a half, we have mentally battled so many things, have we not? My brain hurts. Does anyone else feel a little bit out of control mentally? Maybe, maybe a little lost, confused, foggy-headed, unsure, rattled, fearful, worried, anxious, maybe just mentally distressed in a general way that you can't define anyone? Feel that? All I'm asking you to do is apply the teaching of Jesus. As His disciples, that is what we signed up for. And that is the only thing that will really help us get through. Would you pray with me? God, help us by the power of your Spirit to get control of our minds, to take every thought captive, to recognize the worry and fear and anxiety that gets swirling around and and just say no to shift our perspective to remember who our Father is. Lord, help us to remember your promises. God, you need to be first. We are so overwhelmed with so many things. I wonder, I really wonder, myself included, how many of us could say we're seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness. What would happen if we really did that? Work in our hearts and our lives. Transform us by the power of your Spirit. Renew our minds, as it says in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Transform us. By the renewing of our minds, Work in our lives, as we partner with you, as we take seriously these other commands about taking every thought captive and not worrying. do a work in our lives. May we be different this week. May there be real life change? And God, for anyone in this room has never really put their trust in Jesus Christ. I just pray you'll help them know that they can't do this. That only is by the power of your spirit when you come into the heart and life of people who make a decision to put their trust in Jesus and his cross and say, I throw it all on him. I can't do this. I can't save myself. Save me. And those who have had that moment of faith where you by grace save us and move us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and fill our life with your spirit can do this and have your promises. So I pray for anyone in this room who's never done that, that they could just do that even now, even today. Just respond. I believe you're there. You're always waiting. You're not willing that any should perish. You're you're longing for us to come home like the Father of the prodigal son, just waiting and watching, ready to run towards us if we'll just make a move, just to respond to your spirit, God. I pray someone today would do that and just say, yes, I need God, I need Jesus, I need my sins to be forgiven, I need everything that's being offered to me by Christ on the cross so I surrender to that. Save me, Jesus. Jesus. Lord, thank you for working in our lives. Thank you for the changed lives that we see. Continue to work. We surrender it all to you, only you, only you. You're the only one that does anything that matters in this church. We're just just trying to be used by you. God, keep working, keep working. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.